Okay, let's pray. We'll look at our passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this time that we have uh, here this morning to study your word. Lord, we ask that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that you would uh, soften our hearts to hear a word from you. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would guide us in our relationship with you. Um, and Lord, we just uh, we thank you that you're a loving God who cares about us, that's uh, working on us and in us and through us. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to grow in our relationship with you, that we would bring you honor and glory in all things, and that we would desire um, to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would guide us now by your spirit. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> taken a number of tests over the years of my life, and one of the worst tests I have ever taken to the point where I was so frustrated that I wanted to get up and smash the uh, recording device that was giving the test to me was the DLI language aptitude test. The D DLI is the Defense Language Institute, and they, they have a test to help examine an individual to see if they have aptitude for languages, and clearly I did not have the aptitude, they sat us in this room, and it was one of these old tape machines. You know, you could press the eject, and the little thing would pop up, and they put the tape in it, and they had the piece of paper. And you could take notes. It was okay to use notes. But once they pressed play, the test was on. There was no backing up. There was no re-asking the question. And the test began, from what I recall from the post-traumatic stress of the whole event, it kind of started with noun, blah, 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 verb, blah, object, <laughs> started with like three. And it said, now we need you to tell us the order that these sounds come out. And it's like, blah, blah. And I got like the first couple. Then they started adding new parts of speech and new sounds. And by the end of the whole thing, it was like, bloop, 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 bloop. And I'm like, I give up. I don't have a clue what they're saying. And then, like, I literally wanted to go up to the tape machine and just take it and smash it. 
But there are other guys apparently still taking the test. Turns out I don't even have aptitude for English. <laughs> and the reason I bring this test up is sometimes it's easy for us to, to get so discouraged and so frustrated that we don't even want to press on anymore. In, in Philippians already, in Philippians 1.27, Paul has told the church in Philippi to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Like, what, what standard is that? Like, if I'm honest with my, do I have the capacity to really conduct myself in a way that is worthy of the gospel? And if I, I don't think I do. He then tells us in Philippians 2.5 just last week to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, hey, the attitude that you as a follower of Christ are to have, you're to mimic his attitude. And he talks about him going to the cross. So I think of the quote of uh, old Mark Twain that he once wrote, few things are harder to put up with than some, uh, let me start over. Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. <laughs> like we have an impossible standard between like the gospel and the person of Christ that, that it'd be very easy for us just to, to give up on the whole Christian life and to say, I'm not even going to press on. I, I don't know if you've been there. I have been there. It's like, I can't do this. My flesh is too powerful and, and I'm struggling. And it'd be easy to kind of read through this and to, to get discouraged and to think, Paul, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to like demotivate people? And I, and I don't think that's at all what Paul is getting at. Like he's going to turn the screws on us even more today. And... I think that the key is, I had a friend that said the key to understanding today's passage is understanding that spiritual fitness is the true path to joy. So spiritual fitness is the true path to joy, and I think that's really good. So Paul is encouraging the readers of his letter, which is the church in Philippi, that they would, they would press on, they would place their eyes on Christ, that they would... Uh, mimic his attitude, uh, that they would conduct themselves worthy of the gospel. And it's not meant to beat them down. He's trying to encourage them that God has begun a good work in them and he's working in them. And that as they lean on him, he will work within them. And so we begin our passage in verse 12. And he says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also but, but now much more in my absence. So we see this so then. So, so, so then what, what's the context? Uh, going back to verse 5, we see that Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he talks about Jesus' emptying himself, that being God, he humbled himself in becoming a man, living this perfect life, and then going to the cross, going to death. Even death on a cross is what he says. And basically in his humility, in this attitude that Christ has, we're told that the Father lifted him up and gave him a name that is above every name, that every person, whether dead, alive, um, in heaven, every, every human will bow at the name of Jesus. And he says, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, and, and this is important, uh, it's 
this tells us the heart. Sometimes it's easy to miss uh, the tone of a letter. It's easy to miss the tone of a text message. It's easy to miss the tone of, a, of an email. It's, it's very easy to miss the tone of various things. And here, Paul says, you're my beloved, and you've always obeyed. Not just when I'm with you, but in my absence. You've, you've always responded to the teaching. And so he's kind of giving him an attaboy. Like, you're doing good. Keep it up. Then he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, it'd be very easy for us to misread this. Think, oh, Paul's telling us that you have to work your salvation to, to try to earn your salvation. Um, if you go down that road, you're going to miss. Paul's point entirely, because right in verse 13, he uses the same setup. He says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. So he says, work out your salvation because God's working within you. Um, a couple weeks ago, Gideon came up to me. For those of you who don't, don't know Gideon, he's my five-year-old boy, almost six. He says, Dad, I need, um, I need a piece of wood. Okay, why, why do you need a piece of wood? I need to burn my math book. <laughs> well, let's talk about this, son. <laughs> what did mom say? <laughs> kind of was my, she says it's okay. I'm going to burn my math book as an offering to the Lord. <laughs> okay, let's do this. I don't know about you, but I felt that way about math, you know, and I, there's, there's a certain amount of math that I enjoy. Then I remember growing up that, that math reached this point where cheating didn't work anymore, <laughs> where the teacher said, I don't care about the answer. I want to see your work. <laughs> Tell me how you got here. Well, that's way harder than coming up with the right answer. Like, because even if I could look at it and I could come up with what the answer was without even cheating, but trying to articulate how I reached that place was a tricky thing. And I think that this is the key to this. this when, you, when you read this verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not talking about like trying to earn your salvation. Paul is talking to those who are saved, who have placed their faith in Christ. The the whole context of this passage is about sanctification. This is moving in the process of Christ-likeness, not justification, which is dealing with salvation. This is you as a Christian, you as a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in him, You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You've been equipped to live your life. So work it out. It's like you have a gym membership, so work out. Do the work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, these well-known verses talk about the same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul makes it very clear that if you want to get right with God, there is nothing for you to do. 
Getting right with God comes down to faith in Christ. That the work on the cross was sufficient to bridge the gap between your sin and this relationship with God. But this passage doesn't stop there. He continues, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God created you for a purpose. He desires to work in your life. He desires to use you for his glory. He says, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, these, uh, these works that he's done, that he's prepared for us. And so when we read this passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, I've noticed that Christians don't like this idea of fear and trembling when it relates to God. <clears throat> We've... Um, We've, we've kind of sort of like toned, watered down God. And if you go to like the original languages about like what does this mean, this, this means fear and trembling. This is the picture that you are before the living God who spoke creation into existence. In our immediate context, in verses 9 through 11, For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This God who saved us, this Jesus who died on the cross, is the one who's always existed in eternity past. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He humbled himself and he went to to earth as a human. He lived out his life without sin. And he was nailed to this cross in a violent, brutal way. And he absorbed the wrath that was due you. And after three days of being in the tomb, he was risen from the grave in great power. And he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And this is the God whom we serve. And I think what Paul's saying here is take God seriously. Don't joke around. He saved you. Now live it out. Fear and trembling that you're going to stand before this God who's given you life, who sustains you. Stop playing games with him. But in this case, they've not been playing games. They've been living it out. He's encouraging them to continue to go the distance in the midst of this world that is pressing in on them, that's bringing this persecution, this world that Paul presently, at the time of writing, he finds himself incarcerated, not knowing the outcome of his life. He says, you know what? I care more about being concerned about what God thinks than what I care about these guys who think that they have my life in their hands. Well, how are we to work out our salvation? Seems simple at first glance. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. (laughs) It's like the basics. There's actually so much here within these two things, grumbling or disputing. Um, The context here, going back to verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. So the 
the context, I think, of chapter 2 is Paul's concerned about the attitudes of those who are following after Christ. And so within these two words, we see internal attitudes and we see external attitudes. The grumbling is something that you kind of do within you. We've all grumbled, amen? You could have a smile on your face. You can be going through the motion of what you're supposed to be doing, but then within you, you're grumbling. I don't want to contradict, but like as a parent, sometimes I'll take that. <laughs> if you're having a hard time with this, do it with a happy on your face. That's kind of like a saying in our house. But as an individual, when we're applying things and circumstances to our life, this holds you all, all, that all, that word always gets me because it's all, all inclusive, very big net. And grumbling, it's something that comes so naturally, you know, I'm good at it. In the military, we have a saying that if you're not, if they're not grumbling, they're not happy. And so it was kind of like encouraged. But from a biblical perspective, as we look to the attitude of Christ, who if there was anybody who could justify being a little bit upset over the things that had happened to him in this life, it was him. But we're told to have that, his attitude within us, and so do all things without grumbling to get your heart in check. And if you're having a hard time, just put your life next to Jesus's. Were you wronged more than he was? No. Then disputing. This is an external attitude. This is how we go about dealing with one another. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Remember the aim of this whole passage going back to, I think it's uh, previously, um, 27 through 30 was a section that talks about unity within the body that Paul is driving for within the body of Christ, that unity is super important. And so I think when he writes, do all things without grumbling and disputing, his focus, his aim, his thrust is that the body of Christ would be united on their mission for sharing the gospel and allowing God to work through them. He says, verse 15, so that the reason... Behind this previous phrase, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, whom you appear as lights in the world. So he's saying that this world that we live in is totally like corrupt. It's against God. There's, you're going to be swimming the wrong way. up. The, you're going to be going up the river, and the river's going to be coming down. And everything as followers of Christ you're going to seem out of place in this world. And he says, in the midst of that, you should be concerned about being a light to the Father in heaven, that you're going to stand out. But if you live your life in a way without grumbling and disputing, you're going to stand out to the world. You're going to to be like that bright light in a dark place. And this doesn't have to be complicated. I don't even know who this guy is, but every time I go to Costco, it seems like there's a guy. I should know his name. Once you make it through the maze of Costco, you have to go through security getting out, right? You hand him your receipt. And normally I'm pretty happy because I'm, that means that I'm on the final stretch. All I have to do is load up the car. And there's always the courtesy when I see this guy. Well, now I'm a little bit more trained. 
But I'll see him and give the courtesy, hey, how's it going? Like, hurry up. I don't need the smiley face. There's no kids. Just, just let me go. But whenever I say the, hey, how's it going? I don't really mean, like, like I'm just being honest with you all. Like, hey, how are you doing? I'm just saying it. I'm not really looking for a response. But he always I'm so blessed. And I look at him and I'm like, I may not even say, I'm like, that guy, I need to be more like that guy. <laughs> like that. All he said was, I'm blessed. And it changed the whole demeanor of my like rushness. And I'm pretty sure that there's been other times when I go past this same guy and I say, hey, how you doing? And I'll like be more like ready for the I'm blessed. And, and a couple times he's looking at me, he's like, yeah, I've been praying for you. Dude, I'm thinking, do you know me? I didn't want to really go into that. I'm like, thanks, I need it. I really appreciate that. Like, and the, the, the point of all of this, when I look at verse 15, this whole you appear as lights in the world that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent simply by doing all things without grumbling or disputing, that if you simply care about the words and how you go about your life and you, you're thinking from an eternal perspective, that you can train yourself to have a traumatic influence or impact in the life of another person. So he says, how are you doing? I'm really blessed. Blessed beyond what I deserve. (laughs) Doing better than what I deserve. You can say all kinds of things that are simple. They can have an impact. And the idea is to have the mindset of that of an ambassador. If you were ever in the military and you deployed overseas, you'll know that before you enter a country, or maybe it was just me and what I did, but we would have like huge briefings. Hey, you're landing in this part of the world. These things are offensive to them. They list all of the things that are offensive. When you go out, wear a collared shirt. When you go out, tuck in your shirt. When you go out, wear closed-toed shoes. When you go out, be quiet. When you go out, don't use profanity. Realize that when you're out in this country, you're an ambassador for our nation. And so it's really groomed, and I'm not saying that military personnel do this the best. They have a bad reputation in a lot of places for not doing this. But so the idea is that you're groomed, like, hey, when you go out, it's not about you. You represent something bigger. And we're told in Scripture that if you're a follower of Christ, that you're an ambassador for Him. And how you live your life, you have an impact on how people think about Him. And so we need to start thinking this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal Through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He who made him no no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's this pleading that if you've trusted Christ for salvation, that you're this new creature, that the spirit of God is within you. As you go out amongst the world, as you live your lives, how you live your lives matters. This whole Christianity thing, it's not just something between you and God. You have been adopted into something bigger than yourself. It's not about you. And this is generally the first sign of Christian maturity is when you realize that the world extends beyond your belly button. 
meaning that the whole world's not about you, that it's about others, which is in this, verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And to recognize that if you're in Christ, you're his ambassador, that when you're out there, simply not grumbling, not getting into disputes. And it's hard with social media because there's so many times like I just want to get into the dogfight of a useless dogfight that doesn't, you know. But have you reached the place in your life where you realize that you're an ambassador for Christ, both good and bad? And I do think that we need to examine our lives that as we're going through, how does this, how does my reaction, how do my words, and I'm preaching to myself, I'm not preaching at you guys, I'm preaching to myself. Like, how does this reaction, how do my words, how does that reflect upon Christ? And I think that that's Paul's plea here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. How do we do this? Our flesh is strong. The world is strong. It's all, our whole culture goes against biblical teaching. And he says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. And so he presses them to the word. He presses them to Christ. As they're working out their salvation, as they're living it out, they turn to the word. Being in the word of God on a regular basis as you're consuming God's revelation, it begins to change you. It it, it shapes your worldview that you're placed in these certain circumstances and your reaction might be to respond one way, but then you get kind of convicted like, no, I don't think that's right. And so that as we grow in the word, we learn more about God, we become more like God, we, we begin to be used by him. And, and the key, and I, and I don't want to, so easy to, to miss verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. This isn't our own strength. If you've come to Christ, we're told that the spirit of God is within us. And as the Spirit of God is within us, we're able to then work out uh, things in our own life. And so it's His working, His initiation, and then we respond and we are obedient and we follow after Him. And, and this all happens. Hold on to the fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run or toil in vain. So Paul says, keep close to the word. Keep honoring Christ. Live for him. What is, you know, the question, what does God's gym look like? If we're talking about working out, I see the word of God that we're growing and nurturing ourselves in the word of God. It, it doesn't happen overnight, but as you place the word of God in your hearts, change happens. Could be years, but fruit will develop in your life fellowship is key fellowship with god that as we have a relationship with christ we now have a way to commune with him and so we 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 seek him in prayer we we communicate as we read the word of god we feel god leading us at times like hey go say something to that homeless person i don't know that doesn't seem right to me and then you do it and then god does something 
fellowshipping with one another. Hebrews tells us not to, to, not to forsake the gathering of one another. Being in Christian community is critical in our growing because it's not about ourselves. It's a part, like, as Christians, we're part of the body of Christ, and we together as a whole, you bring stuff to the table that God has given you to help the body of Christ, to, to, to strengthen, to encourage people, to, um, to be used for his glory. And Paul constantly talks about this, this, this day of Christ, that he knows that one day he's going to stand before his maker and he's going to give an account of his life. And this reality drives him day in and day out. And I think it's important for us to realize that one day we're going to stand before our maker and we're going to give an account for what we did with the gifts that he gave us. And he says, that, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run or toil in vain. They were Paul's life's work. He found himself incarcerated. He's writing to them, not concerned about his own behalf. He's like, if I die, that's gain. If I live, I'm going to live for Christ. So he says, I want to encourage you all in Philippi to run your race. Get serious about God. Continue whether I'm there or not so that when I stand before my maker, I will have reason to glory for what God did in your lives. He says, but even if, (laughs) this even if, this is the bad news. Because Paul's situation, he doesn't know if he's getting out of prison. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed at the end of the day. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He thinks he's going to get out. He senses he's going to get out. We know historically that he would get out. But at the time of his writing, he didn't know what the outcome of his life was going to be. And so he says, but even if. I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now, I don't know if there's any people that are doing offerings these days. But what's a drink offering? Let's start with a bonfire. Because we're Southern Californians. Everybody's gone to a bonfire, right? Or anybody's had a big fire? I wish I had a big fire right here because I got a bottle of water. So let's imagine that I have a huge fire here. And then I took off the water, but I'm going to put on the cap just because I don't really want to make a mess of the stage. And and I dumped this water onto the fire. What would happen? There'd be this huge... And then there'd be like this gust of... uh, The water would be liquefied into a mist or a steam and it would go up. And there'd be nothing left of the water when you have a really, really, really hot fire. That's what a drink offering is. That it means that everything is fully consumed. There's nothing left. There's no evidence that it ever even happened. It's just everything is given. And Paul's describing his life like this. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, meaning at the end of the day, I might be executed. At the end of the day, I may have nothing to show for my life except you and how you're living your lives for Christ. It's a beautiful picture. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, that their faith is a sacrifice and service, that that they are serving Christ through their faith. can't see what you're going to do, God, but I trust that you've called me to do this, and I'm going to walk by faith. I can't see now. I see dimly in the mirror, but one day I'll see you face to face. I'll see what you're doing in the big picture. Right now, I can't make heads or tails of what you're doing in my life, but I trust that you're working and I'm going to continue to live my life to honor you by faith. 
And he says, I, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. He says, don't let my circumstances fool you. My joy is in Christ. My joy is not in the circumstances of my life. And this joy that I have, I want to share it with you all. I want you all to see that it's available to you. He says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This is all building to, you know, Philippians 4.13 that we all know. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. It's not about getting our Christmas wish list crossed off. It's about regardless of what life throws at you, that you can endure all things in Christ who gives you strength, whether you have a whole bunch of money or nothing at all, everything's going right for you or everything's going wrong for you. Your focus, your anchor is in Christ. And we see that Paul is pouring his life into them, into others. Back at 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. All Paul cared, Paul cared about them, helping them in their relationship with Christ. And I would encourage each one of us as we serve Christ to put others before yourself. Serve others. Give of yourselves. As you worship God, it's going to manifest itself in, in, in doing unto others because that our example is in Christ. And so as we wrap up, spiritual fitness is the path. Spiritual fitness is the true path to joy. So I wish I had a piece of paper to give you homework. But the homework is to really examine your spiritual fitness. And like, what does spiritual fitness look like? The, the first is, have you trusted in Christ? Like, that's like the big softball. Like, if you haven't come to Christ and received the gift that he's offered you, namely, that he went to the cross for you, that he absorbed the wrath of God that was due you for your sin. There's no reason trying to do anything else because nothing you can do can get you right with God. The only thing that can get you right with God is to offer the gift that Christ offered you, and that's that he died for you. Now, if you've received the gift, quoting from Paul in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7, where he says, uh, Bodily discipline is of little value, meaning that there's some value. But he says, godliness is of great value. And so the question is, how are you disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, which simply defined as taking God seriously? Number one, are there things for you to stop in your life? For me coming to Christ, I was doing all sorts of stuff that I needed to stop. There, were, there was music I needed to let go of. There were uh, my exhaustive vocabulary, some of the words I needed to let go of. There were relationships I needed to let go of. There were things that needed to be cut out of my life in order for me to progress. And so you might have things that you need to cut out of your life. And I'm not God. I'm not going to sit here and dictate to you but I'd ask you to go before God, like, Lord, what are things that I need to cut out of my life in order to advance my relationship with you? 
Because I'm certain that there are things in your life that are hamstringing your progress in the faith. And then what things do we need to do? Well, he says right in our passage, um, to hold fast to the word of life. Like, how are you growing in your relationship with God through the studying of his word? Your, your fellowship, your relationships with other Christians. I found that other Christians often encourage us and sort of kick us in the side to, in a good way, to spur us along in our relationship. How are you serving Christ? As you begin to serve and get involved, God uses that to, to mold you and to shape you into the, to the person that he desires you to be. Examine your life. Examine your purity. Examine your pocketbook. Examine your time, your resources. If somebody was to examine your life and try to build a case for you, what would they come up with? And so I'd encourage each one of us to kind of build a case in your relationship with God that you are spiritually fit so that we would live out. Verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this truth that Christ is within us. Father, I pray for those in this room or who may be listening who don't know you as Savior. I pray, Father, that you would, um, Father, that you would help them to connect the dots, to reach the place in their lives where they understand the gospel clearly, where they would respond to the gift that's being offered to them. But for those of us who have trusted in you, for salvation, Lord, I pray that you would guard us against the easy uh, misconception that we need to earn your grace, that we need to earn your favor. Father, I pray that you would give us a bigger uh, understanding of your love for us, your kindness, your, uh, your moving in our midst. This passage tells us that you're at work within us and that from that, we're to work out our salvation. So, Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to grow in our relationship with you, that we would grow uh, in our desire to honor you with our lives. I love the simplicity of this passage, that it starts with just grumbling and complaining Father, I pray that you would help us to evaluate our attitudes, both internal and external, through your lens. We recognize that we are incapable of doing anything apart from your moving in our hearts. So, Father, we pray that you would so move in our hearts that we would be able to conduct our lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, that we would be able to have the attitude of humility that Christ had and being our example. We love you, Father. We praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.